We turn this evening to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 38. We had returned to our study in Genesis last week and picked up with God's working in the life of Joseph. Remember, Father Jacob, or also named Israel, has 12 sons, and the brothers were envious of Joseph and sold their brother to the Ishmaelites who brought Joseph down to Egypt. But at chapter 38, the Holy Spirit turns from Joseph to focus on brother Judah, Judah the fourth born of Jacob. Genesis 38, if you haven't read it lately or have never read it, it will surprise you. And we'll seek to understand how it's a declaration of the Lord's grace. Genesis 38, God's word, verse 1. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chezib when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass, when he went into his brother's wife, that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. And therefore he killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garment, covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, What pledge shall I give you? 
So she said, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot who is openly by the roadside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. And it came to pass about three months later, or three months after, that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah, my son. And he never knew her again. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in the womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand. And the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, This one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, How did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. God's word. Should we bow together and ask for his help and blessing? Our gracious Father in heaven, your word and your ways, the history of your church is surprising to us. We pray tonight we could see the glory and grace of our God. We pray that you cause your word to be preached truthfully and that you'd give us the hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we've all probably, brothers and sisters, we've all probably been frustrated at times by the kind of a storyteller that, that doesn't stay on track, the storyteller that, that gets lost in the details, the storyteller that goes off on rabbit trails and we, we want to call them back. Where is the story going? And to the uninformed reader of Genesis, that would be the response, right? Started out the story about Joseph. It was an intense story. He's sold into slavery. He's, he's been bought by Potiphar. Where's this going? And then now we're on Judah? What happened to Joseph? But to the Christian who knows that this is God's inspired word, written by the Holy Spirit, who has literary talent, infinite, we know that this is no mistake. This is no wasted episode. This is no rabbit trail. There's a purpose for Genesis chapter 38 being wedged in between 37 about Joseph and 39, which returns to Joseph. Genesis 38 has a purpose, as God tells us about Judah. What is the purpose? Well, 
Maybe there's a number of things. For one, this insertion reminds us there's a time gap here between chapter 37 and 39. Joseph's in Egypt for a while. Secondly, this chapter prepares us to appreciate Joseph's stand in the next chapter when Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him and he resists the sexual temptation against Judah's failure here. And third, there is something quite fitting about following Judah because, number one, Judah is the one who had talked the brothers into selling Joseph to the Ishmaelites. But even more importantly, because as we know, Judah is the line from which David will come and the line, therefore, from which Christ will be born. And so we're looking at the line leading to our Lord Jesus Christ tonight. But what's God doing here? Well, God is saving his church from being swallowed up by the world. God is saving his church from the worldliness that would enter life. Let's look at that tonight. First of all, we see the solid obstacle, the solid obstacle of Judah's rebellion, and then the confrontation that comes, and then at the end, the surprising breakthrough of Perez. First of all, the solid obstacle, Judah is in rebellion. We read in Genesis 38, verse 1, It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah left his brothers. That means Judah left the church. The family of Jacob, Israel, was the church at this point of the Old Testament. It was the family to whom promises, covenant promises, gospel promises were made. Judah's departure is sad. It's wrong. And in the place of friendship with the church, as miserably represented as it is at that time by these brothers who sold their brother into slavery, in place of fellowship with the church, Judah takes up fellowship with Hira, the Adulamite, a great kind of worldly friend who will arrange sexual encounters for you. And we're reminded of what James says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Doesn't mean we can't befriend worldlings. We ought to befriend worldlings and and show them the love of Christ, but it means if you become a friend with them in the sense of adopting their attitudes, their beliefs, their motivations, their way of living, if you join the Canaanites, then you can't be a friend of God. First John says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It doesn't mean if you, if you like flowers or if you like woodworking or if you like material things, that's worldly. You know, worldliness are principles that are not the principles of heaven. Principles like selfishness. Principles like idolatry, principles like sexual immorality. Judah here is headed on the path of extinction. He's committing spiritual suicide. He's left the church where the promises of grace are found. He's gone to the world, befriended the world, beginning to live like the world. The Canaanite ways are coming into his life. Judah's hope doesn't rest in the promises of God. He is not one crying out, Lord, deliver me from my sin and be my savior. But he's doing what Esau did. Remember Jacob and Esau? Uncle Esau? Uncle Esau who went away from the family. 
try to find his own way in the world, create his own luck, make his own happiness. Judah befriends a Canaanite man. Judah marries a Canaanite woman. And surely Judah knew the story of Abraham seeking a bride for Isaac, how he insisted the servant go back home and get Isaac a wife, not from the Canaanites. And and surely Judah knew how Rebekah could not bear it that Esau had married Canaanite women. And surely Judah knew that, that his own father Jacob had been charged by his father not to take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. But Judah doesn't care. He's not interested in keeping covenant with the Lord and being faithful to the Lord. Judah's heart is revealed here. Just as today, whom we date and marry as single people reveals our heart, right? It's not just a command, marry only in the Lord, but who we date and marry actually reveals what our heart seeks. Because if we're not seeking the Lord, then we're not attracted to godliness. If we marry someone outside the Lord, it reveals that our heart is not seeking the Lord. Judah's heart, as he marries a worldly gal, shows his heart is not for the Lord. But with this Canaanite woman, he has three sons, Ur and Onan and Shelah. And it appeared maybe that, that God was blessing him. But then what does Judah do? He goes ahead and gets his firstborn son, a Canaanite wife, a woman of the world, a woman of a foreign god. And we read that this Ur did not please God. Verse 7, Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. That's pretty pointed and pretty personal. Then Judah demanded of his second son that he do the requirement of the leveret marriage, the brother-in-law marriage, that if your brother dies and has no offspring, then you must marry his wife and raise up offspring. At least the firstborn would be his and bear his name. And that was very important in Israel because it was the continuation of your name and was wrapped up with inheritance. And pretty soon God will give his people the land of Canaan, which represents salvation and heaven. And, and so you want a family member to live on that land and to wait for the coming of the Messiah. And so this was all very important. Well, Onan, just like brother Ur, just like father Judah is filled with the world. So he enjoys Tamar, but he refuses to raise up an heir because he knows that if he raises up a son, then that son will be the inheritor of his brother's estate. And Ur was the firstborn. But if Ur has no descendants, then Onan and Shelah can enjoy the full inheritance by themselves. So he uses the woman, but refuses to love his brother, selfishness and greed, and sexual lust, but no godliness. And the Lord kills him. It's a sad picture. Family that's not living by faith, not living by the promises, not trusting the Lord, but living for themselves in their own way. And what's Judas' response? This is he humble and says, oh, Lord, I have messed up. I've walked in the ways of the world. I raved my sons in the way of the world. Forgive me and save me. You know, he, he says, Tamar, why don't, you, why don't you go on to your father's house? Go back home for a while here. And he's thinking, this woman's a jinx. 
two of my sons dead. I don't want to give her the third one, though he tells her he'll give her the third son when he grows up. He dismisses Tamar. He sends her out of the covenant circle. She had a right to be there. She had a place to be there. She'd been brought into the covenant circle, and he sends her away. Doesn't humble his heart before the Lord. And then we read in verse 12 that Judah's own wife dies. And apparently, we're at the end of the road here. Two sons dead, Judah's wife's done. Looks like it may be the end of Judah's line. And if he's hoping to get remarried and have another child, or if he's hoping that Shelah might marry someone else and bring him a grandson, at least it's about done for spiritually. Their line is about done for spiritually. They had sunk deep into Canaanite culture, the unbelievers that lived in that region. It lost his unique identity as a son of the covenant. If you stopped by to visit this family, you would have no idea that, that these had come from the church, that these were descendants of Abraham. It looked just like the world. And it's all very dark now. The future for the family is, humanly speaking, hopeless. This is the way of rejecting the Lord's path. Still happens in the church today sometimes, right? People leave the church. They give up the place of promises. They walk away from the gospel. And Satan always says, you know, it's, it's glorious out there. You'll have your happiness fulfilled out there. You can do it. And it's always a dead end. It's death. All paths of worldliness are death. And what's even sadder here is that Judah doesn't seem to care. He's lost two sons, sent away a daughter-in-law, and lost his wife. And instead of being woken up by all of this, he's easy come, easy go. He's walking straight for destruction and doesn't care. He appears here to be content to live out now his futile existence by doing things the Canaanite way. He gets past his mourning for his wife. He's going to go up to sheep shearing, which was a great party time. He's going to visit harlots. He's going to hang out with the kind of men who approve of you hanging out with harlots. And he's going to pass his meaningless days in his own meaningless way as he heads straight for hell. And he's fine with that. And God shows us what we are left to ourselves. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Where hearts are not naturally inclined to continuing in the ways of faithfulness. We're not here tonight because we're good people. Because we preserve ourselves so well. We see in Judah that if the Lord would take off his hand for a second, we would stray and wander. Judah despised the covenant. Might look like the end of the road, but God had other plans. Notice secondly tonight that this solid obstacle of Judah's hard heart is confronted. The confrontation. Judah, after his wife dies and he's comforted, he goes up to the sheep shearing festival for presumably partying. Tamar is informed that her father-in-law is on the way to the sheep shearing and she concocts this plan to dress up like a harlot, park alongside the road. 
because she's seen that Shelah has grown up and he hasn't been given to her and so she's left destitute. Now what Tamar does is not right and we detest her method, but we begin to wonder, is this woman understand more of the covenant than Judah does? Does this woman care more about the covenant succession, a descendant, an heir, than does Father Judah? Well, Father Judah falls right into her trap. He wants to visit her thinking she's a harlot. And by the way, for Tamar even to concoct this plan, she may well have known things about Father Judah that were not told in the text. I mean, how was she to suppose he would ever fall into such a trap if she didn't know something else about Father Judah? But he wants to come to her and... She says, what you give me, he says, a goat, I'll send to you. Well, what do you give me until then? What, what deposit will you put down? He says, well, what do you want? She says, how about the signet, the cord, and the staff? Those were very personal items, personal identification, kind of carvings and things that would mark you, that could put your stamp somewhere, that, that people knew represented your name. It might be like your, your driver's license and your wallet. She says, I'll take those. So they strike a deal. He visits her. She conceives. They depart. He doesn't know. Three months later, he's told that Tamar, your daughter-in-law, is pregnant. He says, bring her out and burn her. And we shudder at his hypocrisy. But on the way to the stake, she holds up the wallet and driver's license and says, hey, anybody know who these belong to? By the man that owns these, I am pregnant. Judah's mouth must have dropped open. Judah is caught, he's exposed in every way. Not just his sexual immorality, but his complete covenant unfaithfulness. And Judah knows that he releases her of punishment. And he proclaims that she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. Tamar was not guiltless, but she was more righteous. She had been married to one of the sons of the covenant. He died, she was willing to take the next son. He died, she was willing to wait for the third son. She apparently cares about having an heir. She cares about continuing this family. She hasn't sought another husband. She hasn't gone the way of the world to live with the man she's been waiting. Her refusal to look elsewhere may have suggested that that she had in some way embraced the covenant. That maybe she knew when her first two husbands got killed That whoever this Lord is that they told me about, he takes the covenant a lot more seriously than these fellows do. Had she heard the stories about Father Abraham? Was she continuing as Father Abraham did, trying to help God along with the promise, taking another wife as Abraham did? Is Ruth's allegiance, the Moabite who comes in later, Was her declaration just a fuller expression of what Tamar was thinking? Entreat me not to leave you or turn back from following you. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. 
But we don't know. We don't know what's all in Tamar's heart. But we know that Judah has just seen what's been lacking in his own life. And he in some ways apparently humbled. We read at the end of verse 26, and he never knew her again. That's an expression of repentance. That he's saying that was wrong. And I won't do that again. That's what repentance is, to say that's wrong. I won't do that again. God here has confronted Judah in his worldly ways. Judah wandering from the Lord and God stepping in front of him and saying, No, Judah, you may not go that way. God using even Tamar's failures here to to awaken in some way Judah, it seems. This is the Lord of the covenant at work here. In surprising ways. The Lord of the covenant who cares about his purposes, who cares about his people, who cares about our souls. Some years ago, I was at a pastor's conference, and the speaker, reform minister, said that he, when he was young, he'd come to a church, and he, he was teaching catechism to the high schoolers, and they, they just didn't care. They didn't care. And it came to a point in the catechism class that he one time just, he just broke down before them. And he said, why don't you guys care? Why don't you care? And the mother of one of the students later told this pastor the story. The daughter came home from church that Sunday, and she was quite affected. And her mother asked her, what's wrong? And she said, I think, I think our pastor cares more about my soul than I do. And that's really what you have going on here in Genesis 38, that the Lord cares more about the souls of his people than they do. Judah fine with walking off the cliff and God saying, no, I'm not done with you. Judah, you will serve my purpose. Judah, you will know me. And he calls him back. Isn't God a gracious God? As we see it in our own lives and the mysterious ways in which God convicts us and turns us and confronts us and stands in front of us. Maybe you can tell stories from your youth and the road you were on and God said, no. I'm not going to let you go. Maybe you can tell stories from this past week where you were all too content in sinful thinking and God said, no, I'm not going to let you go. This is the Lord of the covenant. He cares more about our souls than we do. But finally tonight we see the surprising breakthrough that God works through all of this mess. Tamar's discovered has twins. When it comes time to deliver them, a hand pokes out and the midwife ties on a thread and says, this one, this is the firstborn. But then the hand goes back in and unexpectedly breaks through a different one, a different child. And she, in her surprise and enthusiasm, says, how is this that you broke right through? And she named him Perez, breach or breakthrough. Breaking out or breach maker. That's the title that he wore for the rest of his life. He broke through. But there's really something deeper going on, isn't there? A dead end family. The end of the road. And the Lord in his grace has 
broken through. Because you see, you're going to meet the name Paris again. At the end of the book of Ruth, as they give the genealogy leading up to King David, Perez. And if you turn to, to Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And on it goes, down to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the ultimate son who breaks through in the most unexpected way. We are dead in people, going the way of the world, and Christ coming to save us. The Son of God bursting forth at Christmas, born of a woman. The Son of God bursting forth from the tomb, no longer dead, but having paid for our sins. And Christ bursting forth in our lives to deliver us. Tamar herself becomes a mother of Christ. Her name written to this ancestry of Matthew 1, along with the names of three other women whom God used in surprising ways. Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho. Ruth, the Moabite woman from among the enemy. And Bathsheba, who committed adultery with David. Are there skeletons in the closet of the church? God brings them all out and says, oh yeah, this is how I work salvation. I didn't choose these people because they're wonderful. I didn't choose them because they're perfect. In fact, they would have killed themselves. But I worked in all of their messes to bring forth my son. I worked in all of their failures to bring salvation. Christ is the great Perez, the greater than Perez. He's the breach maker who opens a way for sinners. He is the breaker who, when we've come to the end, and sin has a hold on us, he breaks through our hard-heartedness and the deceit of sin and the temptations of the evil one. And even when it seems like everything's a lost cause, like this family of Judah, behold the Christ who breaks through with grace. This story, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. This is your story, and this is my story, and this is the only story we're telling. All other stories are merely human stories, and they all end in the same place. Hell. But this is the story of sovereign grace. And if this is your story then God will keep you to the end. If this is your story, then you must rejoice, confessing it was not me. I'm a sinful mess. It's by your grace, O Lord, that I've been rescued. And if tonight you're on the path of Judah and you're going the way of the world, then it's not a story to give comfort to those who are walking in rebellion. But it's a story to bring you to your knees and to bring you to cry out, God, save me through Jesus Christ, the great breach maker. What a glorious story. What a glorious God. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we give our praise to you. How surprising are your ways in a dark and a barren world. You bring forth the Lord of life. 
Oh God, how we love you. We love our Savior. We're thankful you visited our dead-end lives with life, that you've broken through our sinful ways with grace. We give praise to our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that he would govern us and keep us, that we would not wander into worldliness. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.